Hello, this is Shane with Radical Rocks. Today we've got a very exciting episode for you. We're going to talk about Peridot. We're going to talk about buying gems when you travel. How about Black Opal? We've got some celebrity news. Talk about some glue that could be important. We're going to talk about some fossils, uh, the Godzilla shark, a turtle find, uh, T-Rexes as a pack animal, possibly, other dinosaur questions and uh, that seem to conflict with modern day theories of dinosaurs, some Mars news. We're going to go deep inside the Earth's mantle and also talk about tumbling, If we have time, we'll go into Rich Hill, talk about some geology, and we will talk about, (laughs) we will talk about uh, some of the mining history there, so stay tuned. Alright guys, I want to thank you all for tuning in, for subscribing, for um, sharing and liking. Uh, the membership seems to be growing up. People are going to RadicalRocks.com and scrolling down to the bottom of the page and joining in our social media. A lot of options there. Uh, checking out our videos and uh, sharing this education and entertainment on all things rocks, gems, and minerals. So let's get right into it and talk about some of the exciting conversations and episodes that we have today or of the episode today, I should say. So this is obviously not professionally done. It's uh, roll the tape and go, right? So sometimes I do stammer and uh, misspeak, and I apologize for that. Uh, Do the best I can. Don't shoot the volunteers, right? (laughs) So if you go and subscribe to Fire Mountain Gems and Beads, which is not a sponsor of our show, but they have a newsletter. They'll gladly send that out to you along with all their advertising. But sometimes it's quite educational. They sent me one out on April 17th. They've got a, a little write-up on bales, a guide to bales, different types of bales, how they work, um, and how to create things with bales. They have uh, recommendations on ways to create custom handmade jewelry designs, Uh, and bales that are ready to go right there. Of course, we do have a video on how to make your own bale out of silver that you can check out as well. Um, Also, amethyst is a big thing. Uh, They talk about uh, earrings with amethyst. They've got other non-traditional uses for jewelry findings, how to think outside the box with this. all sorts of other things, beads and things like that. How to secure a donut with a donut bale. All kinds of interesting things here. Um, right adhesive for the job. In fact, there's an article on glue, but adhesives are very important when you're making jewelry and also when you're working with rocks and minerals and doing some lapidary work. So you might want to check that out. You might want to subscribe with them and get some of that great information on news rocks and things like that so dinosaurs we love dinosaur news it's always interesting Um, there's an article in the conversation.com the conversation.com and the article says dinosaurs how our understanding of what they look like keeps changing on April 16th and they've got a picture here of this crazy looking dinosaur bird that uh, has these feathers on its legs Uh, it looks like total reptilian dinosaur blended with a bird and they just talk about how the discoveries of things that they found have caused them to draw dinosaurs much differently than the way they were drawn say 20 30 40 50 years ago and when we think of a lot of these dinosaurs as being um, looking just big fat uh, reptilian looking creatures lumbering along and they've also found out that a lot of these dinosaurs may have lived in water or in somewhat watery conditions and they're finding them a lot of times 
in water, which to me makes a lot of sense because their bodies are so big. In a lot of scientists have said, you know, it would be hard for them just to sustain themselves that weight in a normal atmosphere, where in water they would be much more buoyant, just as a hippo lumbers along on land, even though they can they can get trucking pretty quickly. Um, they're very agile in the water, and that's where they prefer to be. So, a lot of interesting things coming out on dinosaurs. How about twenty-five million dollars in clams? That's a lot of clams, right? On CNN.com, it says Philippine authorities seize fossilized giant clam shells by Ian McSweeney, and that was on the 17th. They've got this huge pile of these giant clams. I mean, they look like columns from a Roman building that have been, you know, ground. Um, a lot of them because they're um, they're not full round clams like you would think. Some of them are, but a lot of them are kind of more rectangular shaped with these you got to see this picture you got to check this out uh, cnn.com philippine authorities sees fossilized giant clamshells worth 25 million so there's about 150 tons of this fossilized clam that was stolen and they were able to recover these fossils here of these giant clams some of these clams are several feet long they're huge so that's good that they got those back, I guess. Um, I don't know if they allow for legal collecting um, or a permit or something. That would be nice. All right. I've got a lot of rock and gym news on buying precious gems when you travel. We've got something on Peridot and some other things. Another fossil hunter here finds an ancient turtle. Um, it's almost two foot long petrified turtle and this can be found at the campbellrivermirror.com Campbell River Mirror and this fossil hunter here Russ Ball and some of his team found this giant um, ancient turtle on a local river and uh, this is in British Columbia apparently because it's going to make its way to the museum at the Royal BC Museum. The article is written by Mike Conyard, and that was on the 19th. It says this sea turtle died in what makes up the banks of the Comox River Valley. And um, they found it as they were digging up dirt for, I think, a dam or some sort of a river project. And there it was. Now, it looks like roadkill is the way they describe it. There's some videos here, too, if you want to watch. They show them actually digging some of it up. They're very excited about it. They're not sure if it's a new species or not, um, but it is a complete turtle. They've dug out the pieces one by one and are going to send them and have them studied and protected. But it's over two foot tall turtle, or two foot long turtle, so quite a large um, turtle to be found. I had a friend who I believe he had found a turtle or his grandmother had found a turtle. It fits right in the palm of your hand and it was petrified. You could see its head, its legs, everything. It's just amazing. He showed it to me once, uh, Calvin, over at the Orange Belt Mineralogical Society. I won't put his last name out there because I don't know if he wants me to do that. But uh, really a cool turtle, probably worth a ton of money. Um, who knows? I mean, it was collected way before any laws against collecting it, so I think he has all rights to it. I think reptiles uh, can be collected in most areas, so there shouldn't be an issue with that. But it was really an amazing find. Now let's go deep into the earth, deep into the mantle. You know, our amazing planet Earth is so much more complex um, when you look at it than you would ever imagine. You know, gravity, people talk about gravity, and I had always heard growing up that, you know, that it, it's like a theory, okay, um, how it actually works. They know that the density of the planet is what creates its gravity, but we've also talked about the ability of the Earth to be a magnet, um, an electromagnet, and some of the studies that they've done, you can look up here at usra.edu under planetary news, a super ionic phase in Earth's deep mantle. Now, I won't go into this too much, but they've got a great 
picture of the earth. It's divided and you see inside the mantle and you see these volts reaching out to the surface of the earth, especially to um, these land masses. And it says here that this super ionic water ice is an extreme phase that is formed when water ice in high pressure, high temperature environments in this phase, the water molecules break apart. The hydrogen ions, which are protons, can migrate through the oxygen lattice and become highly conductive, just as conductive as metals. This ionic water ice is suspected in shaping the interior structures and affecting the magnetic fields of a giant ice planet such as Uranus and Neptune. Inside the Earth, however, it works a little differently. Water is mainly incorporated into hydrous minerals rather than water ice. Hydrous minerals, especially if they are in the super ionic state, play an important role in the deep interior of the Earth, controlling thermal and electrical conductivity, magnetism, redox product, uh, process, hydrogen circulation, and isotope partitioning. Now, all these things are what make our planet really amazing because you may have thought it's the sun that keeps the earth warm but actually this regenerative process within the earth that's stated somewhat here and creates the magnetism is what also helps keep our earth warm a lot of people don't know that um, but it is it, it's everlasting um, warmth that comes out of it at least from human standards and keeps us alive and makes our planet so wonderful and so amazing and so um, different than so many other areas it talks about this increase of electric conductivity which happens in this super ionic state and it has to happen under 17 100 degrees 1700 degrees celsius and under huge amounts of pressure the combination of this temperature and pressure is what allows this really interesting thing to happen um, it's the physics of exotic super ionic phases with hydrous minerals that provide a new view of geophysics and geochemistry of the earth's interior to scientists to be able to study so really amazing the article goes on um, in great depth I just wanted to share some of the technical stuff with you so you could just kind of think about how wonderful and special our planet is how amazing it is just perfect for us to live on for life and for the variety that we see in rocks and minerals and to just be floating perfectly now as for things that don't float so perfectly there's a mysterious asteroid about the size of a dark dwarf planet that lurks in our solar system. Uh, at BaliInside.com, at BaliInside, the article is entitled, A Mysterious Asteroid the Size of a Dwarf Planet Lurks in Our Solar System. It was written on the 19th, and it says NASA has spotted this 9-ton meteor headed toward um, the planet well before impact uh, they were studying this uh, planet that they studied and it hit um, this was a giant asteroid more than the uh, more or less the size of a dwarf planet they say I'd say a lot less but um, they researched that and found out the minerals that are on it and this one that they're finding this meteorite or this dwarf planet they want to call it, it's really more like a asteroid or meteorite is a black rock that contains they think organic compounds as well as a variety of minerals and water so since they were able to study those pieces what makes them think there could be water on it well under a microscope they can see what it's made of the pieces of that first asteroid that hit the ground uh, 13 foot 9 ton asteroid um, and it is a black meteorite and it is filled with particular minerals that are known or at least um, thought to be from the sources of water 
So because of that mineral being there and there being an absence of water, that would be how that particular mineral would be born, as they say here, or birthed, they say. So samples brought back from asteroids uh, by Japan's uh, little rocket and studying that they did. I'm not sure how to pronounce it. Hayabasa 2 and NASA's uh, or- Orisis REX probes. They reveal that more space rocks minerals um, that they thought were rare are turning up in these meteorites. And they're amphibolin. And they contain these minerals that uh, supposedly came from water. So anyway, that's... Uh, one that is coming it's not headed toward our planet or anything like that um the one that headed toward our planet is the one that hit it's the one they're studying that's the nine ton one they don't go into exactly how big this new one is that they discovered they're just kind of finding out that it is a black one and uh, they will be keeping an eye on that and i'm sure we'll be hearing about that more and more uh, they're always finding stuff out there that's just amazing Now, we do like to keep up to date on our Mars uh, mission and uh, anything coming out of Mars. It seems to be a big topic of conversation. In the article found at knbr.com, Mars didn't lose all of its water at once based on Curiosity's rover find. The rover has been climbing the three-mile Mount Sharp located at the center of the Gale Crater uh, on Mars. It is a very interesting mountain to study because they are finding what they believe is differences in geological uh, erosion. At the base, they're finding what they feel is mud. Uh, Up, up higher, they're finding sand and sandstones. They're finding that were worn by um, wind and such. And they believe that based on what they're seeing on this mountain that there was a watery time on mars it dried there was a second watery time on the planet again so it has gone between changes of wet and dry wet and dry the rover continues its uh, mission and revealing uh, the information coming from mount sharp and using its drill to find out what kind of rocks uh, that are in there could add additional insight to why they had such a drastic climate fluctuations from these floods to dry weather. Maybe they'll unlock that secret and find out what that is. All right, mass fossil site in Utah may prove Trianosaurus lived in packs. T-Rex in packs. Okay, I I looked at the article and I don't know that that's true. some of the sea creatures that were found here if you want to look that up it's kjzz.com and uh, the articles by sophia epilato with the associated press um, report for america on april the 20th they state that this finding in uh, salt lake city here they have found several trianosaurus rexes all in one area Um, giving them thought that uh, this might possibly be that uh, these lived in packs. Now, also, as you study the article, you will find out that a lot of other creatures have been found in this area, including sea creatures, such as rays and other creatures. To me, uh, it sounds like um, these animals just died in one particular area. They also found turtles, fish and a complete skeleton of an alligator. Um, These animals do not appear to have all died together, it says, but I would think that maybe they died over time, and this was maybe an area on the beach that uh, allowed bones and things to wash up and gather. That would be my guess. Of course, you know, I am not a paleontologist, so my, my thoughts don't count, but You know, amateurs have found so many wonderful discoveries. All right, Godzilla shark, three million year old fossil discovered in New Mexico. You go to Eyewitness Weather, uh, Science and Technology, and there it is. You go to cnyhomepage.com, and you can look up this article or just, uh, you know, uh, 
do research on the Godzilla shark. This shark was found in Albuquerque, New Mexico. It seems to be a new species. It's only about six and a half feet long, six foot seven inches. This thing had these fossilized, they found a, a fossilized skeleton. Okay, you never find a skeleton of a shark because they don't have bones. But apparently, this guy has these ridges uh, or spines uh, across it. So according to the New Mexico Museum of Natural History and Science, the complete skeleton of the shark was discovered and identified to have 12 rolls of, of teeth with two fin spines on its back. They were two and a half foot long each. So pretty interesting um, that they found this Godzilla-like traits. Um, looks very interesting has a huge large wide jaws and spines and is quite interesting they found it in the shelly limestones and there it was so you can read about this uh, creature and hopefully they will find uh, more of these in the future that would be really cool let's talk about glue <laughs> we mentioned that on the website the email that i got from uh, the vendor there that they had an article on adhesives and glues super glues can be very useful for gluing uh, stones to a piece of metal for faceting or grinding for gluing rocks and treating rocks you can actually use it as a hardener and sometimes uh, it can be used for filling cracks and things like that in a pinch it depends you have to kind of you have to kind of trial and error these things out to find out how good they are uh, they do release quite easy with heat if you do put a stone on a metal like a nail a little tiny stone you want to super glue it to a nail you just heat the nail up a little bit and it'll pop right off uh, and when you're done so that's kind of handy but they have a list of glues here at bestgamingpro.com they've got the gorilla glue super glue loctite glue different types of glue here if you're interested and you're in the market for glue then you can check that out there's waterproof glue all of these can be useful on our blog you can go there. The link is at the website, RadicalRocks.com. I've got a whole article on how you can use glues, what kind of glues that you can use. Sometimes we like to highlight stars or famous people, popular people, sports people in our all things rocks and mineral. Today is Katy Perry at Bollywood's Hung hungaman.com it's b-o-l-l-y-w-o-o-d-h-u-n-g-a-m-a.com they have an article here with Katy Perry she's wearing this uh, beautiful dress um, with gemstones all over it there's sapphire and topaz and amethyst and yellow sapphire or topaz there looks like this peridot emerald rubies quite a few citrine uh, diamonds i understand are on that as well and it's really cool and it, it looks uh, pretty tasteful it's not uh, real trashy like sometimes you see famous people wearing um, really trashy clothes it looks appropriate enough uh, it's a nice black dress with uh, long sleeves and somewhat of a scooping neckline not too bad and just a gemstone every three or four inches is on the on the dress and it is beautiful she says uh, she's all about finding the diamond in the rough ha 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 she's going to be on american idol in this dress apparently so uh maybe that's already been out i don't know it says uh, american idol eight to seven central so i don't see anything else on it there wasn't a lot of verbiage in this article so that is it on that let's move on to our next article another dinosaur uh discovery here where was it we're gonna get into 
Well, let's finish this one. I think it's the last dinosaur discovery. I'm not sure. Dinosaur discovery shakes up theory of evolution, claims a Bible expert, and this can be found at express.co.uk. And the article here goes into this finding of this dinosaur that really cannot be that old. It's of a duck-billed platypus, and they actually found skin and tissue of this dinosaur. Now, we know that under the right conditions, skin can be preserved for thousands of years, but not millions of years, and certainly not billions of years. Uh, just doesn't happen, not even hundreds of thousands of years. So under the best of conditions, uh, tissue, things like this, can be preserved for quite a while, but not that long. It just is not possible according to everything known. The duck-billed dinosaur in question has been estimated to be four years old when it died, 23 feet long, about 4,000 feet, 4,000 pounds at the time of its death. What makes the discovery so special is 90% of the dinosaur's body is still covered in fossilized skin. Remains of skin and muscle and the beak are still intact. Its claws are still enveloped in a sort of soft tissue glue. X-rays reveal the dinosaur's entrails have a remains of its last meal. Tree leaves, flowers, stems, and shrubs. Now, this dinosaur was dug up, I think, was it Montana? I forget where it was dug up. I read this earlier, but uh, this really shakes up the theory that they died millions and millions of years ago. And actually, there's been quite a few finds where dinosaurs have now been found with feathers, skin, even blood in a jelly-type form that uh, the fact of this is kind of being bypassed by most scientists because it really shakes up their belief system um, a lot. So, interesting article. Certainly something to look into regardless of your viewpoint on this. Was there dinosaurs in the last few thousand years? You know there's certain um, cave drawings that is agreed as only a few thousand years old that do depict what looks like dinosaurs. So, very possible... Uh, I believe that man did dwell with some dinosaurs at one time. Now, black opal. Let's talk about some rocks. We haven't talked a whole lot about rocks. It's all been lapidary, gemstones, planets, uh, meteors, and Mars. Australian black opal is beautiful, and that's why it is one of the most expensive gems in the world. This article is written by Clancy Morgan, April 12th. and can be found at businessinsider.com. And there's some neat video uh, or pictures of this black opal that you can check out. It's kind of an interview style that was done here. And um, it goes in to tell you that... Uh, High-quality black opal can cost $10,000 per carat. Uh, even for an expert, finding this black opal is not easy. And after investing tens of thousands of dollars, a miner might not find a single gem. So as you go through this article, he talks about how he spent so much money to find this black opal. And in the end, he really didn't f become super rich. He did managed to survive and make a living but never hit one of those really spectacular pockets but he says compared to common opal which is usually one color black opal exhibits many colors in contrast by its dark body tone it's just a stunning gemstone you know there's no I did a poll one time on people's favorite gemstones and at first, you know, turquoise and agate and things like that were really taken off and then opal just blew them all away. Everybody was like, yeah, you know what? I really do love opal. It's beautiful. So you can find opal in many parts of the world. Spectacular opal has been found in Ethiopia, Brazil, Mexico. 
Uh, but over 90% comes from Australia. Black opal is found at Lightning Ridge at the edge of the outback. There's only about 2,000 people that live there, but they've been searching for opal for well over 100 years. But it isn't easy. It isn't easy. They try to drill vertical shafts in an area that they think contain opal. They clear underground a room large enough to dig at the rock, and then they look for opal clay. They look for this rock. They look for the seams of opal that look glassy. But you need about $100,000 to $150,000 in your pocket just to start this. Buying equipment doesn't guarantee you will find this. Sometimes people will drill in a hole and dig and find $2,000 worth, and sometimes they will find nothing. So the rich, spectacular pockets uh, are few and far to come by, but when they find a good pocket, they find these clusters of grapes, um, and newbies are all gathered around that one area, and looking and hoping. They says it sounds like gra uh, glass when they're digging into it, but a lot of times it could be just a common opal, a common black opal with no value, no fire in it. So when the rich silica groundwater hardens in the rock over millions of years, they say, large silica spears within the stone diffract light, creating the vibrant colors. The play of color makes each gem very unique, Sometimes they will not find opals for quite a while and then all of a sudden a piggy bank of 10000 or 20000 and all of a sudden you've got all this money and the next month you spend it all looking for the next one. So it's really tough business. This one gentleman, Frederick here, has been looking for 45 years and he says he's done good, not great. He hasn't been in the million dollars. He hasn't been in the fantasy pocket but he still does it um, one black opal can vary from starting a thousand dollars a carat for your run-of-the-mill fire opal going up to tens of thousands of dollars for a really exquisite top quality a main stone that they found over here is 241 carats a few thousand dollars a carat wouldn't be unreasonable pretty awesome black opal is spectacular and um, he just goes on to talk about between 2005 and 2006, approximately $30 million in opal was mined at the Lightning Ridge. And for fans of black opal, there's simply nothing else like it. Just a magical stone. And uh, the beauty of that stone captivated this miner, this prospector, as it will probably you. Altoona to offer virtual camps for summer 2021 kids college. They have a college here um, in PA, uh, Altoona, PA, uh, Pennsylvania, I guess, that you can learn to grow crystals and other classes, learn about the earth, learn about rocks and minerals here. Uh, that came out on April 16th. You go to psu.edu and you can look that up if you are interested okay seven tips for buying precious gems when you travel plus where to find them this article by Erica Ebsworth Gould was uh, can be found at travelawaits.com and uh, there, it's quite a lengthy article talks about color and cut your personality style uh, occasions for buying jewelry while you're traveling shopping like a local watch your budget feel free to walk away if you don't get a good deal and then finally favorite gemstones our favorite gemstones and where to find them so i thought this was pretty cool moldavite czech republic if you're ever going to the czech republic um, you can check out this Moldavite. We've done a lot of different uh, shows on Moldavite here on the podcast. It's a mossy colored gemstone, usually a natural formed glass. It came from a meteorite that hit the earth uh, many, many years ago. And then Fire Opal in Mexico, beautiful, bright, bold, orange colored stone that uh, doesn't display multicolored flashes but is shimmering and glows like the sun like a oceanside sunset beautiful uh can be faceted it can be capuchons 
and uh, enjoyed. It's a tangerine kind of color. Moonstone in India flashes and shimmer with multicolors uh, or two or three colors depending on which type of moonstone you get. Rainbow moonstones are polished and smooth to show off its shine. They're mined in India. You'll find them all over jewelry and uh, mixed and matched with other gemstones such as amethyst, topaz, and turquoise, which also can be found in India. Uh, Amylite in Canada, a flashy option. Amylite resembles a dark opal displaying a full range of vibrant rainbow colors deep inside formed from ancient uh, pods and colorful ammonite is found only in a specific area in the Canadian Rockies. These are like ammonites that will have a shine to them. They're very popular in jewelry. Very good gift to take home from Canada. Amber in Russia, you can find some of the best amber in Russia. Sometimes it can have uh, bugs inside which will hold um, DNA of possible dinosaurs. So who knows? You could have uh, some money in there. (laughs) It is a beautiful petrified stone. Much of it comes from the Baltics and is a great thing to take home. Turquoise, of course, the Southwest. We've talked about turquoise. Beautiful hues of blue, green, spiderweb markings and such. Made for beads and jewelry silversmithing, Native American jewelry, or even gold. Very beautiful. I need to get a drink of coffee here, excuse me. Larimar from the Dominic Republic. Beautiful blue ocean stone. One place in the world it's found is the Dominic Republic in the mountain range there. Very rare, wonderful souvenir. Uh, Looks like the Caribbean sky, bright blue with puffy clouds beautiful stone to wear Um, also emeralds if you're going to uh, Colombia emeralds are beautiful you can get the darkest greenest most beautiful ones uh, in Colombia for the most part and Tanzanite if you ever go to Tanzania you can pick up the beautiful purple to blue Tanzanite only place in the world it's found it is beautiful and rare and very collectible so there's some tips for picking up gemstones as you're traveling i always like to go to a local rocks shop i ask them what are your local rocks and minerals that are found in this area or nearby in the state and always pick up a few to add to my collection because i just love it all right um festival brings rock collectors around the state by christina karasinski and this can be found at the foothillsfocus.com written on the 14th we've got the bradshaw mountain festival featuring rocks and minerals chili cook-off and music at the black canyon plaza they're going to have a rock and mineral show uh, like none other and uh, they're in conjunction with the black canyon mining and mineral museum rock collectors from all over in and out of state are excited to get there and be a part of this. The hours are 10 to 6. Hopefully this is not over. They are charging $10 um, for anybody, for adults, I guess. But uh, pretty cool. They have a lot of rocks and history about Arizona. That is located in Arizona. And let's see. Looks like it's going to be this weekend. So the 17th. So you better get there if you want to. Oh, nope, it's over. It's over. Darn it. Okay, my bad. Oh, see? (laughs) I missed that. Uh, Arizona's Peridot Mesa Gym Mine. Now, if you go to Rock and Gym, you can subscribe to their newsletter, and they'll send you all kinds of articles on Rock and Gym. I recommend you subscribe to the magazine, as always. Um, They are not a sponsor. We do have an ad in the back of the magazine, a very small one. Just uh, letting people know about Radical Rocks and trying to get people on board. So if you've joined up because of that ad, we just thank you for being part of the community and appreciate your support just by sharing um, and all that good stuff. The article's by Bob Jones. He writes so many great articles from them. April 14th, he talks about Peridot. It's actually a town in Arizona 
a few miles east of Globe, Arizona, one of the richest and perhaps the largest source of Jim Peridot in the world, uh, mined by Native Americans there and owned by Native Americans, yet there's several places Peridot can be mined. That is the largest one. Peridot is a gem form of olivine, but what's really odd is olivine is not listed as a mineral. If you read the glossary of mineral species, uh, specimens and species, you will find olivine is not listed because the name's general use is given to a solid solution series of two minerals, phthalite and forestinerite. So pure uh, forestinerite is a magnesium silicate and it is not an iron silicate. Rarely occurs in pure state because magnesium and iron are present in varying amounts of both um, olivine and peridot. So this is what differentiates them is the amount of the magnesium exceeding iron or the phaolite and the iron rich species. Olivine is the name assigned to a series of mineral that is jimmy and identified as peridot in the early days. It can look like a yellow topaz most desirable uh, probably is the greener of the colors. Another name for peridot is chrysolite, which means goldstone. Um, and I might be saying it wrong, chrysolite. And it is influenced, the green shade, by traces of chromium or nickel. Peridot is one of the few gems uh, found in only one color. True peridot can range from bright yellow to um, to yellow green to low iron brownish green and high iron so olivine is always green itself but depending on the influences of these other minerals the peridot will vary um, peridot mesa gems range in size from large five carat to the more typical one uh, to two carat stones the history of peridot mining goes uh, quite a ways back to the Egyptians, actually, uh, on an island in the Red Sea, and you can go there now. It's the National Gem of Egypt, actually, and it's considered the Gem of the Sun, mined some 3,500 years ago. Uh, today it's called St. John's Island, and you can still go there and get uh, uh, some of these green stones today. Now, during the Dark Ages, there was some mining of it through the Zamburgan Islands, and that was done up until about 1905. The island was rediscovered, it says, and called St. John's Island, and worked with deposits with only limited success. And it goes on to some more history. The Apaches mined the gemstones in the southwest, particularly in Arizona. They would expose cavities filled with these uh, grains and minerals of peridot and uh, break these pockets open and sort them and um, prepare them for sale. They still do that today. Peridot Mesa's geology is typically volcanic, a lot of basalt uh, in a low silica and high magnesium with some iron and also this is very important for the formation of peridot. During eruption, uh, sometimes these shoot up in the air, the bombs cool as they fall on the earth. you doing a twisted elong egg shape, which peridot is sometimes found, uh, even to this day. It's a remarkable gem. It is uh, got poor cleavage, which makes it very good for faceting. It's about 6.5 to 7 on the hardness scale, so very um, uh, tough. It's considered a precious gem and when it's in great condition, good quality, clarity, and all these things will determine its value. Above ground, olivine forms in many places on the earth in limited amounts. The famous black sands of Hawaii are mixed with green sands of Peridot. None of the grains are really large enough to facet, but uh, it's still interesting to find. And you can see it there um, sometimes in different places. You're not allowed to collect it uh, anywhere that I know of. Then, of course, there's meteorites, which we've talked about before, that contain uh, Peridot or uh, olivine that come from space as well. 
So very interesting history. You can read about this Peridot and get some for your collection. I have uh, have some myself. It's uh, never really done anything with it. I probably need to get get to work and get the Peridot out and do something. We did put out a video um, this week on YouTube, and I haven't got it over on Rumble yet, but we'll get it over on Rumble. And it is on the Lapidary grinder setup. I set up an older lapidary unit. I show how um, to set up the automatic saw so that you get the saw set up, show you how to put the stone in there, how to prep the stone um, to be more secure, to be safe, and um, how to start the stone on the saw and how to um, how it shuts itself off automatically. I also show you how if you don't have water available um, or it's really cold, you can use a bucket a uh, real simple idea just to use a bucket to keep the wheels wet for grinding your cabochons and grinding your stones with the uh, the grinding wheels. So check that out. Uh, get some tips, hopefully. So this article, Kids Projects, uh, Tumbling Talks, Maximizing Results for Kids Projects and Prizes. I thought it was going to be a lot on tumblers. It was a little bit on tumblers. It's by Jim Brace Thompson. And that's also found at Rock and Jim. That was in the email. Um, they talk about the Ventura Gym and Mineral Society that has uh, workshops and tumbling. They talk about different groups here that tumble different stones, such as the Oregon Beach Agate and other things. Basically, it's going into the basics of getting gemstones prepared to um, attract children. They talk about getting a basic tumbler, how you can start as little as $50, but you get what you pay for when you buy something real junky off a of Harbor Freight or something like that. They will work, but um, they don't last forever, and uh, you will soon want to go to what they call the tried and true equipment if you are going to get seriously into tumbling, and uh, you're going to spend $200 or more for these better tumblers and and uh, vibrators and things like that to polish your gemstones. You can break up the rocks. I've heard of people using a couple of old pillowcases or old blankets and just smashing the rocks up with a hammer into smaller pieces if you have bigger boulders. Um, do wear some glasses or face protection as those rocks can chip and really cut your face or knock out a tooth. But you get those pieces of rocks and then um, you start through the polishing process you need to have a place to put these tumblers because they run for weeks and weeks for each step um, as the use the hard grit to the medium and the fine grits and even the polishing stage you will want to have a place where you can keep them where you don't have to hear them all day and all night or you're going to go insane all right uh, don't mix different types of stones i really have tried to even stick within the same hardness and that can be problematic. Uh, if you just stick with jaspers and agates uh, or use the other stones on their own, you will probably do a lot better. Also another thing, I've tried to polish stones and uh, just use the grits or the polishes. You really need to, um, when you get down to the finer grits and the polishing stage, you really need to use the cushions that you can buy, bits of plastic and things like that that are available um, in walnut shells and things like that. So you can get on this article here and look at uh, how you assess different stones, uh, making the most of everything, displays once you polish these rocks if you are doing it for a show or something like that. You can have little bags to put these in or a treasure chest or you can even have sand where the kids dig these stones out of the sand. There's different ideas for making this interesting for children to um, be able to have the feeling that uh, they are collecting rocks even though it's just at your stand, at your show, at your fundraiser, at uh, educational things like that. So I will be doing a this week a show for the local troop, for the um, uh, trail life, which is kind of like the Boy Scouts, and we will be talking about rocks, gems, and minerals, and then in the end I will get a little bag and have them look at a little uh, box, a little chest as it were, to get a few rocks to take with them as souvenirs, and hopefully making uh, fans for the future of rock collecting and gems and minerals and things like that.
Now, if you're still with me, let's see what time it is. We will go through real quickly a little bit on Rich Hill again. I want to thank you guys that have hung in there with me. Thank you for supporting the channel. Go to RadicalRocks.com and scroll to the bottom and join our social media and whatnot. Now, Rich Hill is a wonderful book, Rich Hill, The History of Arizona's Most Amazing Gold District. Um, I've mentioned the authors before, M. Catherine Combrie, Ph.D., Chris T. Galson, B., a Bachelor's in Science, Danette S. Loretta, Ph.D., Eric B. Melanchlory, Ph.D., now, as far as the geology, we've touched on some of the geology um, the last few weeks. There is a Laramid Orogeny, which is another geological period, which they feel was between 36 and 23 million years ago. A bunch of geological activity in Arizona happened from the tectonic plates, uh, the Pacific tectonic plate to the west, this movement of the plate caused extensive volcanism. Uh, volcanoes erupted all over the west of the United States, through the western United States, through Arizona, California, New Mexico, uh, on up into even um, Utah, um, Oregon, and Washington, and Idaho, and such. These volcanic areas uh, sometimes caused different types of uh, Deposits Now, gold and silver alloyed uh, load deposits above Rich Hill began to erode at this time as it was lifted up. And that uh, could feather out alluvial fans that lifted up the potato patch Rich Hill area. The basin and range formation dropped the potato patch area, went up. This left a modern stream and uh, channel for placer golds to eventually erode and deposit over time. Potato patch was exposed at the top of the hill. Um, the outcrop was on a gentle sloping hillside, so the water slowly, slowly um, did that. This basin and range uh, was formed by these faults, the dropping of uh, part of this area. Part of the ground at the base of the Weaver Mountains that dropped and split created a valley stranding the Rich Hill uh, clear up to the cliffs of the Rich Hill. And you can see remains of these faults. You can see the way the movement is. You can see the drainage patterns that follow along that. And any of these areas could be gold deposits um, southwest of Rich Hill that are buried thousands of feet under sediment possibly. So who knows what's over there yet to be found. Rich Hill area rose 2,000 feet above adjoining valleys, and they have sketches showing these primary quartz veins and ancient stream channels and also the Rich uh, Hill potato patch area. Now, the alluvials began to form and weather all over these risen areas, and um, red color results from rusty staining on the hills uh, from a watershed from the Weaver Mountains and uh, iron and sediment that uh, formed also cemented by caliches and clays that formed from weathering of the local feldspar in the granite uh, formed and the coarse gold from the potato patch as well as sediments of gold from local veins sometimes would be inside that so red placers still contain significant amounts of rich hill gold some of the alluvial deposits uh, from the time range from the extent of the nugget patches at uh, that area from many ounces to the finer placers, uh, considerable iron oxide staining from the weathering of pyrite, which is an iron, uh, can uh, also be found and all the way down to the sediment on the base rock base, you can find nuggets, gold, uh, and along with this reddish sediment, and you could find gold in all of this. Um, next time, we'll finish the geology by talking about the younger placer formations. But now we want to go into a bit of the history. Now, last time we read a lot about Weaver, 
as you continue through the chapters, um, there's a lot of great articles about the history of the area, the people that live there. Mr. Stanton, they have the only known picture of Mr. Stanton, um, the founder of Staten, Arizona, the namesake of Staten, Arizona. Some really wonderful history of the peoples that were there in those days. Now, in Chapter 5, they talk about the district maturing. Um, the gold placer production between uh, the time of 1880 and 1928 uh, was 25,000 ounces in the first five years of the Weaver District and at least 50,000 ounces up to 1883. Now, the first placer gold rush of the district uh, started to kind of drop off at this time and uh, so the loads were becoming of interest and by the late 1800s many placer mines had called their claims deep enough in other words they they worked them out they weren't uh, bringing values anymore so um, from the time of 1899 there was only about 20 men working in the fields full-time producing about 100 ounces of gold each a month sounds pretty good to me sounds pretty profitable um, despite the decline in placer mining, the manager of the octave mine noted that after a good rain, most of the shift workers would skip work to hunt for nuggets. In 1905, it's reported by the U.S. Geological Survey that the annual minor mineral resources volume, only 800 ounces of placer gold, gold were produced by the district. In 1907, Geological Survey reported only 400 ounces of gold were recovered Placer mining remained in a general slump until the Great Depression, though many placer properties changed hands and were worked with moderate success. So, with that started the hard rock mining at Rich Hill. In 1880, this is when load deposits started to really be looked at. Uh, prospecting for rich deposits of quartz gold was uh, simple, but yet difficult at the same time. People would try to follow uh, the areas of where gold was found and locate these uh, these veins and find these rich areas back to the bedrock or load source. Rich Hill, there was uh, no way to really pan there to do their sampling. This is how a uh, prospector samples. He looks for the float gold, follows it up to the um, source of the mineral. Actually, I have a video where we do that. We look for rhodonite in uh, Wrightwood. And it uh, took me several trips to locate the vein of rhodonite, but we did finally find it. So this is how they would do it. Um, once they would find the mine, uh, it was kind of a race. You know, um, you need to get out all the rich gold because typically gold deposits are richer on the top and then it, it gets harder and thinner as you go down. So when you find a deposit, you really need to just dig it all out and get out of there before someone because if you leave, someone's going to come and steal it, right, and uh, dig it all out. So um, load claims were low grade if it was less than one ounce per ton. By the way, now a tenth of an ounce per ton is considered pretty valuable. So back then with um, not as modern technology for mining, one ounce of gold could, could be uh, not good enough to stick around. Uh, if it's one to three ounces then that was considered uh, rich ore, and you should probably sell the claim. If you got over three ounces of gold per ton, that was keep the claim, that's very rich. So most of the load was abandoned uh, because the was less than an ounce per ton, but in a few cases, rich quartz veins were encountered and hard rock mining commenced. Beautiful veins of gold, free gold, to be found there um, for the most part. A lucky few discovered exceptionally rich loads, and uh, in these cases, the prospectors would do the mining themselves but uh, and processing. So some of the ways they would process was uh, amalgamation. Sometimes the gold rock would be crushed, and there would be lots of little uh, chips and pieces and specks of gold that had to be ground out. So they would use these uh, amalgamate. They would pound and and mash that up in an raster with a large uh, rock or steel wheel or a stamp mill or a ball mill with balls or with uh, big stamps that would slam up and down um, but with no creeks and things like that to really process 
they would have to use some pretty crude measures to break up the rock and then uh, to separate it. So they would get the float, they would get the rich ore, they would use a hammer and a drill and uh, put explosives in there, break up the ore in a short period of time, go through that and process that ore, get the richest, best parts out of it, and then use the eraster, um, just a horse-powered mill, and crush up the ore and break it up into uh, richer pieces. They could then um, sort through the ore and use mercury or other things to stick to the oil, uh, the gold, and pull the gold out. Um, so that was the way they did it. Uh, they processed a lot of load that way prior to 1870. Um, crushing and arasters and mercury were typically it. At By 1900, the larger mill at the Octavian mine at Rich Hill, they used uh, shipping. They shipped the ore to other areas to process it even better and get more money from, from the gold. But uh, larger underground load mining also uh, commenced where these bigger hand-drilling guys called uh, jack drillers would uh, drill holes and place explosives in there and um, Cornish miners from England and such would do these drilling uh, using a four pound hammer and striking the um, the uh, the bit and turning it and getting a hole in there for the uh, dynamite and or black powder to be put in there and get that to explode and break up the pieces and haul them out and start processing them. Um, a lot of hard work for hand drilling. Uh, my grandfather did some hand drilling and mining in uh, the Lake Isabella, Kern County area, up in the Kelso area. He had a few mines there, and I still have uh, some of the materials that he used to pack the holes for the explosions um, to be able to do that. I've got a couple of the the little spikes that uh, he would use with a candle to put a candle in the cave to keep it lit while he was working in there. I have uh, uh, quite a few interesting things from the turn of the century from old prospectors. So our prospecting history goes way back. After 1880, of course, steam and compressed air drills begin replacing the hand drilling this uh, helped develop the workings much quicker. Uh, the rock dust, of course, is very bad and uh, would cause uh, sosilic poisoning. Uh, would kill you very slowly and painfully. Be careful of that uh, sosilic dust. That's why you have to keep your rocks wet when you grind them. This dust will kill you. Uh, if you do dry sanding and things like that, make sure you really are blowing the air away from you and you're wearing a protective uh, respirator, well-fitted. So they would do this uh, <clears throat> uh, grinding and jackhammering and dynamiting and detonating and all of this to get the ore. They would pull out waste rock, sometimes use it as backfill in areas that had already dug out and played out. They would refill it with waste rock. Um, sometimes this waste rock can be um, valuable and worth digging up. So uh, a lot of times... Uh, you will see some of these companies go into mines and tell you that there's these reserves of ore. Well, uh, it's probably the low-grade ore that wasn't worth processing. But if it's very old from, like, say, the 1880s or before, it can hold up to an ounce a ton. So it can be valuable. Um, it depends on the mine. It depends on the quality of the, er of the ore. You would have to have it assayed to kind of get an idea. Processing the gold ore from the load mines was a big job. There was a lot of companies that built plants to do that. Um, it's of great expense to transport this ore back in those days. Some of the ore got transported all the way to New Mexico um, to be stockpiled in uh, giant bins and be crushed and processed and milled. And uh, this process would uh, take away a lot of the profits. Sometimes they would use a leaching process where they would use uh, cyanide, basically, and leach out uh, the sulfur and iron, and that would leave the gold behind. And they would get that gold with mercury. Mercury gets around the gold, and then they got to get the mercury off the gold. It's quite a process. 
um, different techniques that took place at those days. I've played with mercury. It's very dangerous, very toxic. Um, you uh, really probably shouldn't mess with it. Um, I really don't use it much anymore, but you find it in a lot of stream beds where the old timers used it on their sluice boxes and dumped a lot of mercury into the creek beds. And prospectors today are actually doing a service by taking it out. Um, they talk more about the uh, cyanide as a gold-liberating agent um, that started in New Zealand and then spread uh, to the United States by 1891. It was widespread. Of course, this can be very dangerous as it's dumped into uh, in the early days into the streams and stuff. Very dangerous. Of course, we don't do that kind of stuff anymore. We'll go into the Hard Rock Mines of Rich Hill even more, the Octavian Mine. Um, this is a corner that dips into the Weaver Hill, and uh, it was a large claim discovered in the 1860s. Load gold, it was free milling. Free milling means the gold is actually visible. You can see it there. Um, today, if you were to find a claim with free gold, visible gold, you would have a wonderful uh, way to sell specimen gold um, you could make a good amount of money just selling the specimens especially if it's a, um, a gold mine with a good name so there are several maps here with tunnels and claims that are all over I'm certain many of them have had their uh, entrances blown up but the Octavian Mill was a giant mine that uh, was mined over a depth of 2,000 feet long along the depth of the vein um, 2,000 feet, producing gold and silver worth $2,250,000 at the time. Gold was probably about $30 an ounce or so. And uh, after they got to the 2,000-foot level, they had a vein that was reportedly 4 feet wide but of low grade. Um, they did not uh, do anything else. They sold the mine. It went in and out of hands throughout the years. Uh, came back again, uh, Staten, the Cowboys at Staten, Arizona in 1922 are pictured here that were at the mine there. These ones would uh, kind of um, protect uh, people and miners and ore from being robbed and things like that. A um, lot of great history here about the Joker Shaft where they... Um, work the mine. There's an actual drawing here that shows the different levels of the mine. They had uh, three different shafts, main shafts, and then of course a ventilation shaft, the joker shaft they called it. They had many stopes and levels, several different levels down below 2,000 feet. Interesting map to see. Many pictures here of the processing tables, the stamp mills where they would mash up the iron ore, the ovens and such where they would uh, the feed bins and things like that the loading carts the mine shafts the tailing piles all of these things are pictured here they include uh, some really neat uh, old stock certificates these are very collectible by the way old expired um, stock certificates of the old gold mines in the 1800s are super collectible now so next time we'll read about the Johnson Mine and more about the Rich Hill Gold area and its amazing history. I want to thank you guys all for tuning in to Radical Rocks. Please go to the website, RadicalRocks.com. And remember, rock hounds don't die, they petrify.